spiritual conversations for the godless. I'm Matthew Blake. And I'm Karen Thurston. Welcome to Heathen. Hi, Hi Heathens. Oh, in unison this Have we ever time. done that before? I don't think so, and I like it. <laughs> now we're going to have to try to recreate it, and we're going to fail. It'll be great. It's going to be really great. Hi, Heathens. Welcome back to the show. Oh, my gosh. This is our first time recording for a while. Ages. It yeah. has been ages. Just because we've had some life changes going on. I don't know. Small things. Nothing major. Little tiny things. No major life events. <laughs> no. I got married. Oh, right. There was that. I got married, Yay. Heathens. That happened. <laughs> We're not going to discuss it in length today, but we will talk about it in an upcoming episode. Yeah. We sure um, will. But at today. Length. At we, all the length. We'll know, talk right? about it forever. Yay. It'll be great. Um, today, go ahead. Today, uh, well, actually, I'm going to let you, Karen, you introduce our guest today. Yeah, so today, you heard that little yay in the background there. Today, yay. we have the lovely, the lovely incomparable Stephanie Tate. How's that? You like mm, that? Incomparable. That's a good word. Uh, yeah, you can keep that one. That's nice. I'm going to start writing that on all my name tags at events. <laughs> the lovely <Perfect>. incomparable. <laughs> Hi, I'm incomparable. In my unmatched <laughs> wisdom. No. I'm, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And okay, we're so there. <laughs> you're gonna want to reel it in, and um, <laughs> um, let's see, let's see. Well, we'll start with here. We'll, we're gonna do the thing to Stephanie that we we do to everyone and make her introduce herself. Mm-hmm. But uh, contextually, I actually met Stephanie at an Instagram meetup mm-hmm. in which is a Portland, thing. which is a thing. I just yeah, uh, at a at a intentional like bringing back the village dinner. Yeah, uh, through that. a woman that we mutually follow on Instagram, and we wound up seated next to each other at the table, and that is how that is how you and I connected and here we are years years hence and and both doing very different things now (laughs) both doing completely different things than we were doing then but here you are so this is the fun part where we're going to ask you to introduce yourself and I hate this question, which is why I literally paid you to write my bios because I didn't know how to talk about myself. Um, I'm going to try. I'm Stephanie. Mm-hmm. We did cover that part. We did. So yep. right now I'm an author and a speaker and a disabled disability advocate, but I'm a lot of things. I'm also an adoptee. If you're an Enneagram nerd, I'm a seven. I'm the mm-hmm. most seven, seven on earth. The seven um, seven of all. I have two amazing kids, uh, and I have a husband who's Canadian, so we get to be super fun socialists together. It's a blast. Uh, Beautiful. But I hate talking about myself. It makes me feel super awkward and uncomfortable, right? <laughs> like, you're doing really Anytime well you so say far. anything too nice, you're like, oh, I kind of sound like I'm full of myself. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you're unmatched. You wrote wisdom. a beautiful bio, though. I recommend you to everyone I can. Thank you. This has now turned into a commercial for me. Yay. That's delightful. I did it too. Karen wrote our, our bio for our band. So well, yes. sometimes you just need that outside person who can, like, when I sent you all the info for the bio, my biggest thing was I am so many things. Things. Mm, I didn't mm. know how to join that together cohesively. Right. And I didn't, I felt like any of my attempts swung too wildly to try to find a niche, just cutting out whole sections of myself, or it yep. was just this disjointed mess of, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of spastic. And you found a way to sort of connect the dots of the heart of what ties all these pieces of me together. And I had never really mm. been able to do that for myself before. So as much as like I get it, commercial bio writing is, you know, like a gift professionally is really a gift for me personally, too, Mm -hmm. to sort of see myself in that lens of, okay, these aren't disjointed pieces. There's a common thread that holds them all together. 
I love that. You just hit right on the heart of why I love to write bios for people because I feel like that's, I feel like what happens, what happened with you and what happens with a lot of people is you send an email that feels like it's all these disparate thoughts, but then I read it and there's such a clear like Mm. mission statement that just jumps out. It's just like, this is, this is the thing that this person keeps echoing and everything that they're writing. And I, I love, I think, I think we just need, I mean, I think that's why we listen to podcasts and why we engage media and why we do anything. It's because we need that reflection mm. of other people to see ourselves. Like we need that kind of interaction. That's what community is is for to give us that clear picture. So it reminded I love me it. a lot of the work I do in trauma therapy, right? Like it's mm. taking those disjointed, disconnected pieces and some of which you've sort of tried to forget or tried to turn off or tried to break and figuring out how to be a whole fully embodied person so I don't know, like I feel like you writing that bio was almost a therapeutic gift to give me hmm. a sense of wholeness in my identity, that I don't have to figure out which pieces to jettison or which ones to prioritize. They're all pieces of this one connected person. I love that. I love it very much. And it's a lot of pieces. We were just talking before we started <laughs> recording about how we have about 400 different directions mm. we could go with There is much muchness today. in me. <laughs> There's much muchness <laughs> and so much to talk about. But where I'd love to start, I mean, I'm, this is maybe kind of an uncomfortable question, but I would love to start by talking about how you got here because, frankly, I feel like you're a little more Jesus-y yeah. than our, That's our, normal, our normal folks around here, which is not a, a bad thing. We're not down at all. with Jesus. We've we done, dig him. Yeah, we've done that from time to time where we've had folks. Right. Uh, it's interesting for me because, Stephanie, I'll, I'll also be completely upfront. I know very, very little about you. And That's part okay. of that is because usually usually I'm really good about doing the research beforehand. Part of why I haven't is because, like I said, I got married recently. So that's <laughs> kind of been occupying my time. Returning. So reading the, about me wasn't a larger priority than preparing for marriage? <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I, I feel like We're, I've let you down. Hey, this interview is um, over and I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> and done. I thought I was incomparable. Um, Apparently, I'm not that incomparable. <laughs> I believe Karen gave you that word. <laughs> and that's, that's, He'll come around by the is, end of yeah, the Yeah, that's podcast. the other It'll reason why I was like, I'm going to lean real hard on Karen in this conversation because she seems to, to know what's up. But also, um, I think part of it is just because I, me personally, I, Karen, maybe you, you might be a little more plugged into what's going on in progressive Christianity a little bit mm. more than I am. I, I have really, really taken myself out of it. Yeah. Um, it's just it's it's just a lot for me to process. And so I know names a lot of the time and then nothing else about what that person's doing. So that's kind of the case here. So I'm excited because sometimes the conversations that we have with folks that I, you know we know nothing about going in turn out to be the most incomparable. So... <laughs> That's that's all I have to say about that. I'm excited to meet you. Yay. Yay. Lots so of let's yays. talk let's talk about how you got here. How did you wind up here? You, you did a thing in the world and it it wound you here. Wound I you did. Here. I wound up here. wrote a book. Hey, I wrote a book did called the, thing. the View from Rock Bottom. And a lot of people do sort of in-person book tour kind of things and I have done more of a digital book tour, if you will. Mm. Uh, I Because I'm disabled and because I'm chronically mm-hmm. ill, as much as I'd like to travel more, I knew that the season in which my book was releasing, so starting fall, uh, it wasn't going to be realistic for me to get right out and travel like that. October mm-hmm. to February is just the worst for me in terms of health. Mm-hmm. I can do a little, but I definitely can't commit to go out there and hit the road. Is that like a uh, weather-related thing? Well, you think, partially. Like some of it is just cold. Uh, when you have any kind of nerve damage stuff, cold is is a beast. My brain can't oh. always translate the difference between cold and pain. That's not mm. fun. Cold's no, really hard on arthritis too. 
But it's also just October to February is flu season. It's norovirus Mm. season. It's everything but the plague season. It's everything that can go wrong. So your body just doesn't always handle. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm actually secretly curious, though, if any of it has to do with, like, trauma anniversary stuff, right? I don't Mm. remember anything specific, but a lot of my trauma happened when I was between the ages of zero and three. So I wouldn't Mm. necessarily be like, oh, yes, November was the time when – but the more I learn about trauma, the more I recognize when there's a seasonal pattern like that to wellness issues, sometimes – the real root has more to do with trauma than anything else. So I'm always yeah. secretly curious if maybe there's another reason why this half of the year is harder for me. Yeah, that's fascinating because if you were that little, you wouldn't have a concept of months and the passage yeah. of time in that way, but you would absolutely have a conceptual memory of your brain. Weather your your body, body keeps track of stuff, though, right? For exactly. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. But I did. Huh. I wrote a book, and now I'm on a bunch of people's shows. But I Doing actually approached you because I wanted to do something different, and mm. you guys were so nice to let me come on. Uh, I don't always feel very at home in the types of shows that are most interested in a book like mine. Right. Um, and that I, I don't want to get away from the fact that being a white, uh, you know, woman in evangelicalism bears a certain amount of privilege. Sure. But there are other aspects of myself that I have had to bury a bit in order to try and fit the mold of what a white Christian author is supposed to look mm. like. Mm. Yep. And so I love that your show was sort of a unique opportunity for me to break outside that mold and say, I didn't really write this book specifically towards other white evangelical ladies. Mm. Mm. Uh, I wanted to do something bigger here and have a bigger conversation uh, that includes more people, right? And includes a more diverse perspective of what it means to suffer and grieve and lament and be a person in this broken world where sometimes bad things happen because bad things happen. Not mm-hmm. because there's some grand divine plan that said, you get cancer and you get Lyme disease. And like, I, that's just not how I think any of this works. So huh. I can love we- that we can not be in my usual mold. <laughs> yeah. I, I do too, and I, I just had a weird, like, can we just hold everything for a second and talk about how you're an Enneagram 7, and this is <laughs> And I wrote a book on pain. Do, and mm. you, like, my understanding of the 7 <laughs> in all of my deep dive in Enneagram land, where I have lived and worshipped for many a year, I feel as though this is an unusual choice for a It seven. is. Yeah. And I mistakenly... Uh, held on to this idea of I must just be the world's healthiest seven for a while because look at me sitting in pain. But uh, love you. my therapist, when she wants to say something really controversial, she'll always just sort of use this tone of like, I, I generally don't care either way and this, I'm not invested in this at all. And here's a thought, like, you know, just if it resonates with you, great. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of those things she approached just like that, right? She goes, well, here's, here's a thought I had, you know, take it or leave it. Is it possible, that's the other giveaway with her, is it possible (laughs) that maybe writing a book about pain and trying to repurpose your pain story into something helpful and good for other people Mm. and hosting these discussions about pain and 
seemingly investing in your pain is just another way to stay really busy and numb yourself oh, from having to actually just sit there and feel your own pain and really no, experience I don't like it. it. I and I was like, we're not, attacked. no, we're not, we're not having that chat. I feel Oof. like that gif of Leslie Nope where she's like, no, I'm in total yep. denial that that's happening right now. Like, I'm just, no, <laughs> no. Oh, so God. maybe I'm not as healthy of a seven as I like to think. <laughs> wow. That, that is some serious like hall of mirrors self-reflection work yeah. to have to do there. That's some, some next level. Well, oh, the other man, half I of it is I don't core. know how much of me being a seven is because I would have naturally been a seven or because mm. of my trauma background. Yeah. I'm yeah. a seven with a pretty strong eight wing. And just in the last few months, I've started to wonder if I would have more naturally been an eight. And if some of that, and there's no way I'll ever know, right? You can't go back right. and un, unmake your brain the way it is, how it's formed from childhood. That's not how this works. And that's not how trauma therapy works. You can't undo the damage. It's learning how to work with the brain you have. But right. I wonder how much of this pain aversion, this inability to sit in silence without having to feel that, how much of that is because of what I experienced in childhood? Hmm. So let's let's go back to that a little bit. Let's um let's try to do like a I don't know a ten minute because you've got your story is an epic in and of itself. Like you've got a, a biography and a half in you, I think. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit if you don't mind telling us a little bit about what that story is and where you came from. Yeah. And how you got to this place where you're now a seven writing. A book I didn't hmm. talk about that component of my story much in the book. I've mm-hmm. been releasing that more in Little Bursts Online. And I'm actually considering maybe going there with the next book and talking more about adoption and that sort of stuff. Nice. But uh, I was born to a birth mother that did not know she was pregnant. She's mm. one of those crazy stories. Uh, wow. She had something very rare happen to her in delivery called cord prolapse, where the umbilical cord Mm -hmm. comes out first. It's very dangerous. But she didn't know she Mm. was pregnant, so she looked down and was like, is my intestine falling out? Like, what what is is happening? So she went to the hospital, and they put her under because you you need to go into surgery, emergency surgery, and have that baby come out ASAP. So she woke up from major surgery to find out, surprise, you have a baby. Wow. (laughs) God. So I guess she and my birth father tried to make that work. Uh, They played house Uh for a while and decided when it wasn't working that what they needed was another baby. (laughs) So they had my Mm. brother. And things fell apart pretty rapidly. They were both drug users. There was a lot of neglect. We were exposed to things that children should not be exposed to in childhood. And my birth father's family came and decided that all of his problems in life were my birth mother and us. So they pulled him out and he left. And that was the last Mm. I ever heard of him. And now being a single mom of two kids, she decided after some really bad advice from the people around her that the best way to hold on to me was to give up my baby brother because he was Mm. new, but she knew me. So Mm. she placed him right away and tried to hold on to me for a while while her life spiraled out of control. Mm. And I spent a lot of time alone, uh, just, you know, sitting in a car seat on a table for days kind of stuff. Mm. So when you have that kind of neglect happen in childhood, um, you end up with, I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So that works a little different than traditional PTSD in that sometimes with more traditional like PTSD, you can, it's not that you recover per se, but there's definitely a more linear set of goals for what recovery looks like. Mm. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder just does not work that way. Your brain has been 
permanently reshaped on a neurobiological level. And it's learning how to live with the brain you have, how mm-hmm. to understand why you have certain coping mechanisms. And rather mm-hmm. than shaming yourself out of having them or saying, well, these are negative habit, it's learning how to say, this is why my brain does that. This is how that protected me. And how do I want to live now? Right. Right. That just got like really heavy really quick. Wow. Sorry. Get really, well, no, I, I'm so I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm hesitant to like jump all the way onto the tattoo. It's hard for me too because I'm this extroverted, outgoing personality. I'm all jokes and all bubbles and very seven, right? And so then you yeah. bring this up and a lot of people don't know how to react to that. Right. Because I don't fit their stereotypical mold of what it looks like to be traumatized, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, and, and I'm in more of it. I'm in more of a nerd space where I just wanted to be like, okay, so do you use the fight, flight, fawn, freeze framework mm. for, and like, I just want to go in and talk about CPTSD <laughs> stuff. So and- I lean really heavily on the fawn. And uh-huh. that's, that's why I think it's so hard for people to understand that they're looking at trauma, right? right. It's a lot of the things <clears throat> that people point to in me and say, she's so well adjusted, Like, Mm -hmm. I would never have guessed that about you because, look, you're super articulate and outgoing and social and you have this great, you know, loving marriage and kids and you're a good mom. Like, you just don't seem like someone who came from that kind of background. A lot of those things were specifically born out of trauma coping mechanisms. Yeah. And fawn is the one that gets left off the list a lot. Mm -hmm. I know people who've done PTSD trauma work and have never even heard fawn as an option in it that was set. a huge They've light bulb heard. moment for me the first time I was told about it. Right? Absolutely. Because, because fight I or flight that, didn't make sense to me. I just want right. to make everybody love me and not leave me and abandon me. Yep. Which without gender profiling too dramatically, I think that that is often something that's nurtured into females as well, oh, yeah. like this fawn as a trauma response. Um, well, then so, you combine yeah, that, so. right, with being adopted into an evangelical, very conservative Baptist family specifically, right? Right. That culture was full. Like, why do so many evangelical women get mistyped as a two the first time they take mm. the Enneagram test? Mm. And I'm one of them. I typed as a two on every Me test too. I took. Yep. Because we are socialized with certain very sexist expectations of what a good personality is for a female. And this personality of mine is not it for the reference. This is completely unacceptable in that context. Mm -hmm. So you take those issues around abandonment and and feeling unlovable and things that come out of that adoption trauma route, and then you add being in a world where I was just painfully aware all the time that the biggest aspects of my personality were unacceptable to the people around me. Mm. And you just end up with this very neurotic individual who is convinced that I couldn't be loved the way I was and I was going to need to change myself dramatically if I was going to be a good Christian, if I was going to be a wife, if I was going to be any of these things. I just couldn't be me. Hmm. Yeah. We know a thing or two about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that doesn't sound familiar at all. Hence your home, Sorry. your show feeling a little more like home to me than some of the outlets oh. I'm more traditionally mm-hmm. welcomed into. So, yep. I'm so glad that you feel that way here. I am too. And that, I think that that is, that is the, the big story. That's the lighthouse beacon. That's the thing is that just there are so many of us who have arrived at that story in different ways. Mm-hmm. This feeling of displacement from one's self in order to belong in order to be accepted in order to be right and um yeah so i i 
I don't know. I hate, I hate that story every time I hear it. I hate that separation from self, but I also love the way that it has landed so many completely different humans in the same mm-hmm. space together. I think that's, mm-hmm. it's a tragic and beautiful, much like joy and sorrow mingling together story. Um, and also our tangent has led us a little bit back to your timeline. So that's lovely because now you've been adopted. Mm-hmm. Which uh, just because I'm super visual, what what age? If you don't mind, just kind of breaking down like how old you were when when I was officially light- pulled pulled out at three, but um, my adoption wasn't finalized till much later, so it's a bit complicated in that. Okay, um, you know, if you had asked me that question like five years ago, I would have been like, mm-hmm. "Oh, I was adopted when I was three, because mm-hmm. the way I'd always heard it told." I understood that it wasn't legal, legal yet, but it's hard to explain how much evangelical adoption culture back then was very one note, right? Like Mm. everything that came before that point just sort of vanishes. And as long as you have this new loving family, they're your family, they're your everything. Um, And so none of that matters anymore. Mm. But in my case— There was a period where my birth mother still had some limited visitation rights. She blew that. But even after that, she was still working towards theoretically trying to get me back. She wasn't doing enough to actually hit any of the standards the judge was laying out, but she was doing, Mm -hmm. you know, half as much. So she could, the thing kept dragging out and out and out. Uh, And it's taken me years to get comfortable saying, like, you know, that wasn't, I wasn't adopted yet. It didn't matter that mm. I was living with my family. It didn't matter that I was trying to bond with them. The reality is no matter what you tell a kid, they're still bonded to their old life. It's normal. That's how you're programmed to be bond to the people that birth you. That's mm-hmm. not a negative thing. That's not me being ungrateful to my adoptive family. And more than that, there doesn't have to be some sort of obscene trauma or mismatch in your adoptive family for that to be true. It's not just cases where, oh, yeah, you hear about the foster kids that go to horribly abusive foster homes, and that's a conversation worth having. But it doesn't have to be to that extreme to admit I was still bonded to my mother. That's normal. Mm -hmm. I spent the first three years of my life growing up with her, and it doesn't matter how much neglect or abuse there was or wasn't. You bond to your mom. It's normal. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of this long, drawn-out limbo process. Hmm. I'm not entirely so clear on when it was finalized, to be honest. I yeah. have one idea based on things I've heard, but I'm not sure I want to say because I, I've heard so many contradictory things now. I'm not really sure when it was finalized. Mm-hmm. Your immersion in the, the evangelical, you said uh, Southern Baptist, is that what it was? Oh, you were a conservative Baptist association. We split off from the SBC years and years and uh, years earlier because they weren't conservative enough. They were for too us. liberal. Oh, boy. Yeah. Those people that boycotted Disney and were anti Harry Potter and like this was us. Yeah. This was us. Yeah. Got it. We were them. Check. Did you get Santa? Um, we were allowed Santa. We were very lucky, okay? <gasps> we had nice. Santa. I will take yeah. it. At least you got However, Santa. Santa's a fun adoption story for me because I had never had Santa before. And I was sure. a very bright, precocious three year old. So one of the mm-hmm. best stories my mom Wait has <laughs> is me coming up to her that first Christmas with uh, different packages and pointing out that Santa's handwriting was the same as her handwriting. Yeah. Oh my and, word. like, uh-huh. I didn't really believe this anyways because I'd never had Santa before. 
So she right. basically just told me not to blow it for my brothers. <laughs> where was where was Santa before, lady? Um, yeah, I, uh, I. This is really important information, but we're very careful with Santa around here. Like Santa has different wrapping paper. Santa has different handwriting. Santa has everything because I have me that kid too. too, who's just very much like here's the here's um so hmm, hmm. Mm-hmm. question. We used to have Santa write a letter to our kids, but I had to like pick one specific friend that they would never see that person's handwriting. So it had to be like a very loose acquaintance. And then I had to get them to commit. Like if you're doing this, then you have to be Santa every year because it's got a match. (laughs) I'm serious now. You're Santa now for life, for life. But I was the kid who at eight, like finally couldn't get around the fact that I knew what Mm. was going on. And Basically, I went to my parents and revealed to them that I knew, but that they should continue to pretend like I didn't know because I was just going to pretend that I still believed in the thing. That is Which adorable. I think it's a lovely summary of who I am as a human being. Um, that is just really perfect. Really optimistically, stubbornly going to believe the thing no matter what. No, I still I can Aww. I can make it work. I can, but. Um, yeah, so anyway, now we're talking about Santa, which is fascinating. But I, I feel like it's so interesting in your story, too, how, like, the thing that feels like it comes up for me again and again is this sort of evangelical obsession with this binary between, like, be- before and after, which mm. is very death and resurrection. It's very, you know, baptized or, you know, buried in sin and raised to walk a new life, baptismal moment of this, like, you had your life before adoption and your life after, and there's a clear line between those. You have life before Jesus and life after, and there's you were you were damned and now you're saved, and you mm-hmm. were this yeah. and that, and, and uh, you know this. You you had pain and then you were healed, and yeah. there's a before. Like I may not have talked about trauma specifically in the book, but you can see these same notes all over it because it's through. the same it's... theme of why is everything so wrapped up in pretty bows all the time on mm-hmm. or separated into polar extremes. Why is it fear right. or faith? Why is it you know, I, I I hate that dichotomy because I think it's 90% of why faith is untenable to anybody that right. finds themselves in real suffering because it's it just sort of steps you back from the whole thing and it makes it very painfully apparent. You're not going to be able to hold these two sides anymore. It's no. just going to rip you apart and you have what to find I'm, a new way. And if I have to find – if I have to have faith without doubt or pain, like – I'm fucked. You like can't. That's, you can't. That's, that's an impossible task to to accomplish. And just this idea. I mean, we're we're both and beings, you know. Yes. And so, little little three year old you is so obviously not a before and after story when you are plucked from one life and put into another. Like that's it is so clearly a tangle of positive and negative and pros and cons, as is everything else that we experience and. It's so it's so interesting what that obsession with this idea of being washed white as snow or clean slates or just this like beginning to th- this this faith healing magical moment where it's all done. It's so interesting the the shame and expectation that that has waited. I think part of what's let me hold on to sort of this new Christian faith that I'm exploring as opposed Mm -hmm. to sort of the evangelical faith I was raised with is that I don't just think we're both and people. I really think we have a both and God. Mm. I'm tired Mm -hmm. of all of these. Is it truth or love? Is it grace or works? Is it, I don't know. Like for me, I've come to this space of if I can explain God simply, then He's not God and I don't want it. Like that's mm. that's too small, that's too flat, that's too one-dimensional. 
if I really believe that there is a God of the universe that is this huge, multidimensional, outside of our comprehension being, then there shouldn't be simple answers. There should be a lot of seeming contradictions that somehow they're both true because he's just bigger than we can make sense of. That has probably been the biggest siren song for me in explaining where I am in faith in the last year, especially because the question I get a lot is, you know, they hear this sort of background in my story and they go, well, then why, why still have a faith at all? Like, why does that appeal Mm. to you? Why not just burn it down and leave? And there are times that that has been really tempting, but coming to an understanding that the image of God that I was given when I was younger isn't who I think God is at all was sort of the key Mm -hmm. that helped me separate those two things and figure out what faith looks like for me now, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. The, uh, the way that I often, so, you know, we're on a podcast called heathen, which (laughs) means we're, we're often, and, and we come from religious families and have religious backgrounds. So a lot of the people in our immediate circles are, are, still in that space. And I wind up having the conversation pretty frequently with people it's like where they're just sort of like, so what, huh? Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Do you, anything from like, how do you sleep at night to whatever? Um, <laughs> but the, the thing that I come back to in the place where I try to, to land with people in that conversation is, you know, the thing that we have in common, whether it, and I just had this conversation with my partner's family who they they are in a, a very particular realm of Christianity and they believe very specifically uh, in a, a specific definition of God. And I said, you know, the thing that we have in common is this question matters to me. The mm. question of why are we here? What are we doing here? What is God? Is God? Mm-hmm. What is our spiritual purpose in the world? What's happening underneath all of this? That question matters enough to me that I'm still sitting here asking it, even though I did burn this shit down mm-hmm. and brought it back. But I, I, the question matters to me. It's deep enough in my bones that I'm still asking it, despite my best efforts to stop <laughs> asking that question. I'm still here asking it. And that's the heart of mysticism for me. That's the heart. And I think that might be the point. That might be the point of faith in my definition of it currently is just the continued desire to pursue that understanding and that question and to look for it, even if we never really have a clue Hmm. where we're going to land, or even if we never, if I never have a, a clear definition again. So when I hear you say, you know, that that definition of your faith feels very similar to my definition of, I don't even know what I would call my whatever, but my way of being in the world is just very much that, that I think it's a big question. I think I'll probably never have the whole answer. And I think it's interesting to pursue it. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's a, it's a, a good sort of common ground to have. It gives us a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm to begin with so hey heathens are you enjoying this formidable paradigm shifting boundary pushing conversation i certainly hope so because matthew and i are working hard to introduce you to remarkable people and bring you rollicking conversations that have the power to make you feel less alone and more alive 
If you love listening to Heathen, would you consider supporting the show? We are looking for folks willing to chip in a dollar or three or seven each month to help keep this thing going. Join us on Patreon, where in addition to the deeply satisfying knowledge that you are helping to construct solid ground for folks taking steps away from bad religion, you will also get exclusive bonus content like sex tips for repressed former fundamentalists from our resident sexpert, Bird Ward a round of Have You Ever with our guests to see who's the most profane, or blasphemous Bible trivia with questions like, who is scripture's most notorious masturbator? I've always wondered. And which character in the Bible likes to talk out of his ass? Careful, that one's a trick question. Click the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com backslash heathen podcast to join the fam today. And thanks for supporting the godless spirituality we bring to ears each week. I'm just interested to see a little bit about uh, how you got from the, well, well, just how you landed where you are now in the space that you're living and breathing and working in now, uh, because that's obviously not. <laughs> no, it's a little you're bit different. A I am not li- a conservative yeah. Baptist. Right. And, and what's interesting is I don't even know if my parents would call themselves conservative Baptists anymore. I mean, they're mm. definitely not anywhere near as progressive or liberal or any of these things as I am, but I, I think it's a value to say in a, if I'm telling these parts of my story that I fully believe my parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time, totally. right? Like if you yeah. adopt now, there is so much more training involved mm. to get certified. There's so much more insistence that we teach people about trauma. Back then, mm-hmm. it was sort of like, here's a kid. Good luck with that. Like there, It sounds like an it. exaggeration, yeah. but it really – there was no – real serious training involved. Right. Right. Uh, and so I don't, I don't, when I speak about sort of the negative aspects of my story, but more importantly, when I speak about like systemic issues with adoption, it's always important for me to say that like this critique is not really targeted at my parents. And I mm-hmm. oddly feel that way about my evangelical upbringing too. Like mm-hmm. I yeah. think they did the best with what they knew They were handed a certain narrative by culture the same way that I was, but I don't think they had anywhere near the tools that I was given to find their way out of it till much later, and I don't really blame them for that. And that's really helped me keep that relationship going and, you know, keep that loving relationship with them. In my case, I think the only reason I was able to find my way out is because I got sick, because Mm -hmm. I was disabled. Because much of the book, for me— was unraveling for people this story of my deconstruction wasn't so much an intellectual pursuit, right? It wasn't like I decided, let me dig in and sort of examine these ideas. It all got blown to smithereens for me, not by choice, not because I started that process, but because everything I had been told to expect, everything I had been promised life would look like, none of that held true for me. And that's common mm-hmm. for a lot of disabled people, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're sold this, we're sold this bill, even outside of evangelicalism, even just as a country, we're sold this bill that we're all in this meritocracy, that if everybody works hard and behaves a certain way, You may not be Bill Gates, but there's just sort of a bare minimum quality of life that you're entitled to. And when you're disabled, it it doesn't really work that way. Mm. I I can't 
earn my way into a functional body that will work a traditional 40-hour-a-week job. It's not going to happen. There's no steps I can take to do better at that or sort of will my way forward with mantras and good thoughts. That's not a thing. So it's almost, it sounds weird to say, but I feel a bit privileged in the fact that I think it's easier to step outside of some of the roots of evangelicalism when you have something like disability come into your story. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to think very hard about, well, maybe this makes sense. It all just sort of blew up in my face. The sicker I got, the more apparent it became that none of this held true in the way I was told to expect. No amount of faith was magically healing me. No amount of making good choices was meaning I was getting rewarded. Things were just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm. No matter how much I smiled and told everybody, it's okay. God has a plan for this. I'm all good with it. It's fine. Just watch. Just wait to see what he does. The longer that went on, you know, the more it blows up whether you want it to or not. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. I think we've had probably just like one or two people in the course of these conversations who don't have some sort of, um, you know, stone in the river that they, they hit on their Mm. journey. I have talked to people who've been like, no, I just thought about it critically (laughs) and like decided one day. Um, but (laughs) you did, (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) But but why though? But like, why? What did, cause I don't, I don't find that surprising because I think Karen might be able to speak to this, but that really is sort of, the undercurrent of a lot of my book is the idea mm. that I'm not one of those people that's going to say God sends you bad mm-hmm. things to teach you stuff. But what right. I will say is if you're living a life of comfort and ease and security, I think it's going to be way harder, way harder to really understand God. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. so funny. I was I was literally talking about this with your partner Karen this morning at our mm-hmm. uh, 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 breakfast, and um, I mean I, I I I see myself as like prime candidate for I would have wound up. I, I talk about my papa on this show a lot, <laughs> um, who is to me the kind of the epitome of of the just the white male American evangelical mm-hmm. person who. Um, like I, I just would have fit really well in the world, just mm-hmm. super easily, and I know how to navigate systems. I think really well, and 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 finding my way to like places of power in them seems to be a thing that comes naturally to me. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the fact that I'm queer, I, like that for me, that's that was my, you know, my my rock in the river is the thing I hit up against over and over again that just wouldn't let me. Uh, um, continue to fit in the world. And I just think all the time about if I had been straight, like who would I be today? Mm-hmm. And it's not a, a, you know, it's not, it's not a thing I, I it's, it, 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 you know, it's the conversation around this joy and sorrow thing and pain and, and, and how grateful we can be for the things that come into our, into our world that we would never say like, well, I hope God gives that to somebody or I hope, you know, right. that that person encounters that type of, pain or suffering or whatever, but, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we, and we look back on it and we have to like, I look back on it now and I'd be like, I have to, like, I choose that now, like after the fact I choose it you know? mm-hmm. and, and I, and I'm so glad that that's in my story and my experience because 
oh, who would I be if it, if it, if it didn't happen? Yeah, it's and, physics, right? It's inertia. It's the, you know, an object in mm-hmm. motion stays yeah. in motion and an object at rest stays mm-hmm. at rest. Like if you don't have, for me, it was divorce. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have a, a, a catalyst, an iceberg that you run into, you know, your Titanic sails along and is fine and, and you, you go about your day and you never count the lifeboats, you know? <laughs> you don't have to. This is interesting because it really hits back on what we were saying earlier I don't know if this was before we were recording or not, where we were talking about how um, things can be so binary sometimes in in, mm. in evangelical constructs. Mm-hmm. Um, everything has to be very black and white. It is or it isn't. It's faith or it's fear. Right. It's So this conversation is another way that I think we're fighting for nuance, much needed nuance in the conversation mm-hmm. around this. Because I do think there are a lot of people that are preaching essentially – um, praise the iceberg. The iceberg's a good thing. God right. sent you the iceberg. He wanted to sink the ship. So be yep. happy that he sent you cancer or he purposely, John Piper has said some really gross, toxic stuff about, yep, God uh, ordains yeah, literally is, everything. So if you get raped, figure out what that means theologically. Uh, That's yeah. messed up. But, and gross is the word. Gross is the word for thank you for the iceberg yes. because people died, like people drowned. Well, and there's and no is, point in my book where I was like, I'm so glad that I had seven miscarriages because those dead right. babies taught mm. me things. I'm so glad mm. that I got Lyme disease. I'm so glad that I had trauma. Like, that's gross. And I refuse to say that because I think in our rush to want those neat bows, some people may hear that in what we're saying. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. may hear. I'm That's grateful for yeah. as like mm-hmm. well. And one of the things I had to unravel in my book was this idea of finding purpose in our pain and making a point to carve out a section in a chapter to say purpose does not mean reason for. Okay, like you are not promised a reason why these things happened. That's mm. not the goal yeah. here. So I didn't want anyone to hear that in what I was saying. I'm not saying I figured out the reason why God made these things happen to me. That's right. that's not the goal. Purpose in can be it's so much more um so much more complex, but it is more nuanced, right? It's yeah. I, I, I see it, good things coming out of this stuff, but that doesn't I'm not even where you are, Matthew. I wouldn't even necessarily say I'd go back and choose this again. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't know if I can say that. Yeah, well, and there's not, there's obviously a big difference between being queer and then, you know, being going through illness that, that disables you. Yeah. Like that's, those are different things. But, um, I, I, I love this idea of what you're, you're positing here between purpose and, and reason. And I, I see part of, part of what makes it purposeful for me at least is, is the intention that I then put into it. Like mm-hmm. if, yes. if there's going to be purpose in this, that's going to be a thing that I create out of it. Agent. Mm. Um, agents. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you. That's a word. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, reason is very past tense thinking, right? Yeah, Whereas purpose is yeah. very future tense thinking. Which, which is helpful for me. I, I'm not going to yeah. be able to go back and determine why certain things happen in my life. And I'm certainly not going to be able to go back and fix them. That's, that's a pointless goal. All right. I can do now is figure out where I go from here. How, how do I take the painful things that have happened in my story and somehow repurpose them? I mean, this is super Christianese, but in the book, I pulled from a totally seemingly unrelated prophecy in Isaiah where they talk about that phrase swords into plowshares and people use it for all kinds of things. But in this Mm -hmm. context, for me, it really resonated as a reminder of just because things were intended for my harm doesn't mean they have to stay that way. I Mm. can find a way to repurpose those as tools for growth, as tools for building, 
as tools to help my community instead of sitting around moaning about how painful the swords were for me. Because then they're just swords for me. That's it. All they've accomplished is bad pain in my personal life, the end. And that is not to say, again, it's so hard to be nuanced, right? That is not to Mm -hmm. say everybody needs to find a super positive bright side. Right. Like, go turn around and, like, quit complaining and find joy in it. Like, this is not choose joy. This is so much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and can we let all of those things coexist peacefully? Mm. Can we let it be? Can we let it be good that you find purpose and story and you beat your swords into plowshares? <laughs> Can we let it be good that someone else in the same circumstances turns inward and watches Netflix, you know, and, yeah. and copes and finds a, a pleasure-filled life as best they can in the presence of pain without turning it into the same sort of... Pr- and can we let all of that be good? Is there space for all of that to be good at once and to derive lessons from both sides? And I would argue, yes, but also that that's like the work of humanity at this moment is trying to find space for Mm. but for me the common thread here and all of that right is that if we really believe we have a huge multifaceted god of both ands Mm -hmm. then if christians really believe that we are image bearers right that if we're created in this image of god shouldn't we be a multitude shouldn't we be hugely diverse like not just you can handle your pain differently but good lord both of those people you just described i'm both of them on different days like some days i am the lady numbing into netflix and not writing my personal pain into a book for other people i think we should reflect those same diverse multitudes and that was the biggest hurdle for me in staying in evangelicalism is everything felt very one note It it is or it isn't. This is what God looks like. This is what Christians look like. This is what men look like. Women look like. I mean, you name it, there was sort of a defined, this is how Mm -hmm. it should always look. It was homogeny, right? Constantly. We called it unity, but it wasn't unity. It was uniformity and homogeny. And isn't it oddly coincidental that we have a, a, theoretically, you know, from a Christian perspective, an infinite creator with unlimited creative potential and there's one right story hmm. and right way of living that bears a shocking resemblance to the American dream. <laughs> like, isn't isn't Wait, that? Are you saying that God is not a white American dude? I'm I'm this suggesting is mind-blowing. That, <laughs> you are a heathen. What? That no. Perhaps. <laughs> but no, that was a huge part of my deconstruction too. Yeah. Just this idea that. I'm a, I'm a creative person. And if you ask me to write the same song over and over again, if you ask me to write the same poem over and over again, I'm going to pull my hair out in two days. Like, forget mm-hmm. all of eternity. I'm done making the same shit over and over again after mm. an hour of trying to do the same thing over and over again. And if I am the Imago Dei in any capacity, the idea that there would be, like, here is your life trajectory. You marry a woman. You create a child. You do the thing. Like, the, the idea that there would be one right way of living, one right story to tell seemed offensive almost. Yeah. Like that feels offensive to me to the idea of a creative creator. Is it, This is a dumb question, maybe. There's no dumb um, questions. Is, 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 <laughs> is there, and maybe I'm just so far removed now, but I, I'm trying to go back into the, that space in and, and my childhood and, and teenage years growing up in that world and 
I don't know how much I was taught that creator is infinitely creative. Like, I don't know how much of a tenet that was. Mm. Like, it has evangelicalism, evangelicalism kind of just cut off the neutered, you know, the creativity of God a little Spirit bit. Like, and just yeah. Like, you hang out over in the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. Think, <laughs> like, it's one of those things where if, if you were to say uh, that in an evangelical space, that he's infinitely creative, they would all nod their heads and, mm, and like, there would mm. not be any vocal outright disagreement. But there certainly wasn't any intentional attempt to teach that either, if that makes sense. Like, it wasn't – they wouldn't disagree with you. They would say they agree with that. But they wouldn't really go out of their way to enforce that as any kind of important component to who he is. Yeah. And then then therefore, it's it's certainly not replicated in the way you live. It's not 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 important to focus on then. So, you know, you don't have to try and model yourself after it or think about it too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I do think it's fascinating, too, when you take the American evangelical church then and the idea that they will preach as the the right way of living, even when it comes down to some of this prosperity gospel, choose joy kind of stuff in this right way, how much of that really does have its root more in sort of a capitalistic ideal than it does in a biblical one? Yes. And if you really start asking that question of why, why do we value this choice over that one, you don't wind up with Jesus. You know, you wind up with, like, money. And you wind up with different things. But most of those whys that we track back as to why we've, we feel like this way of living is superior don't really reflect much of the Bible at all. They Which really are more rooted in... part of why at one point in, I think it's chapter 8, I made a point of saying that some of these critiques are really... We're talking about the white evangelical American church, very specifically. Right. Yep. We are not talking about the global church. We're not talking yeah. about the black yeah. American church. Because right. they had very different lived experiences than we did. And as a result, mm-hmm. it shaped a very different theology of suffering for them. This whole mm. prosperity <laughs> gospel as accepted mainstream theology. And that really is the heart of the book, right? That all of these people yeah. that say they don't believe the prosperity gospel, you do. Trust me on this one. You do. Yeah. You may call it something different, but you still see your relationship with God as some sort of transactional mm-hmm. relationship in which if I behave in X me. way, yep. I get Y rewards. Yep. Uh, that's all just steeped <laughs> in white go. American values. Uh-huh. Mm. So that's the, c- coming back to the, the book, the, it, what it, the view from rock bottom, yeah. that's the kind of the thesis that we're working with here. And that's that, sort of where I started was I wanted to write like a healthier, I keep calling it a healthier, more robust theology of suffering. But, I knew that you cannot Mm. just insert these ideas out there without first admitting we're all carrying around a theology of suffering, whether we think we are or not. There are ideas Mm. that are already there. And if we Mm. can't root out what's there and sort of have demo day up front and figure out what needs to be torn down, there's no point in trying to build something new. We're going to carry the same faulty, toxic baggage with us to whatever the new thing is. And on and on the cycle will go. And for me, like... I had two main goals with the book. One was to get people who would normally say, oh, yeah, the prosperity gospel is bad. Like, I don't like Paula White or Joel Osteen or those folks. My pastor doesn't Mm -hmm. need a private plane. To really sit down and recognize how much mainstream theology is all the prosperity gospel. It is a giant spiritual meritocracy where everybody gets what they deserve. And that's not how the world works. 
But my mm-hmm. second okay, goal was to say, tricky. I can't just leave you with that, right? We can't just be like, so, so everything you believe is wrong. Good luck with that. <laughs> what <laughs> does Thank you for not leaving us a there. <laughs> healthier, more robust theology of suffering look like? And so because I did want this, I, I made a very intentional choice early on in writing the book of who do you want this to be for, right? And I could write a preaching to the choir book in which I meet all the other sort of church homeless people who have walked out and don't see it that way anymore. But I also wanted it to stay accessible to evangelicals. I wanted to write something that makes them go, I I can explain this in context that makes sense to you. This is Mm -hmm. not just my personal opinion. I, I have the tools and the knowledge to make a biblical case for why this isn't ever what it was supposed to be. And I hope mm-hmm. some of that resonates with them because it's a yeah. lot of Bible verses in the book. It's very Jesus-y. It's, mm-hmm. it, it could have been a Bible study, I think, but I wanted to leave them with tools that say you don't have to make a binary choice, once again, between chucking your faith entirely or mm-hmm. keeping up this prosperity gospel crap Right. There is another way in which you can still follow Jesus, but follow him more nearly because you're doing life now with people who are really hurting and are marginalized and you mm-hmm. care about those things in a way that right. the prosperity gospel won't allow you to do. Yep. Yep. I like the both and. Mm-hmm. I like the both and a hell of a lot. Yeah. And I feel like that is such a unique, I think, I think that's a space that a lot of us find ourselves in. And I love that you are in it because I think that you have a gift for articulating these things in a way that is just beautiful. I love that, even though, you know, I, I would argue that there isn't a right way of, of being, uh, I like that you have chosen this way of being. I like that, that this purpose that you have chosen on you quite a bit, because it, it, uh, when you say that, when you, when you talk about creating, you know, something that stands in that gap in the middle, I feel like that's an essential, an essential piece um, and it, and it's a, a place where there there are a growing number of voices, but it's still the smallest. I feel like that's the smallest collective right now. It's just you can't that, that see me, but I'm literally middle. crying right now because <laughs> I'm standing in that middle space. It's hard to be in that space. Like it's a very it's lonely. lonely space still. Yeah, you are not. Yeah. You are not. Jesus-y enough anymore for the people you came from, but you're not Mm -hmm. out enough for a lot of the other folks. And it's a hard gap to stand in because, again, we're still carrying that same toxic baggage a lot of the time. So we want to be binary because that's what we were, you know, raised in. Your brain is still going to want to go to those comfortable patterns. And there are days I realize, especially when I worry about, you know, like actually selling books enough to make a living, (laughs) I I realized it would be so much better for me career-wise if I just left 100%. If I became, I left and here's why. And And there would be people that would celebrate me and invite me to speak and it would be great. And instead, I'm in this weird middle ground where a lot of shows like yours aren't looking for someone quite so Jesus-y. This book is not Mm -hmm. a good fit for them. But a lot of the ones that would have told me I can't come on the show. (laughs) Because the other things I say on the internet really bother them. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, flame and liberal. Just a little. Well, and I had one show tell me I couldn't come on because I couldn't sign their statement of faith. Because it was, you know, it was you cannot be affirming in your theology. So, and you can't be egalitarian. You can't, 
believe, you know, that I'm not submissive to my husband. And I wasn't going to talk about either of those things on the show. And they knew (laughs) it. That's not what we're here for. (laughs) It's not going to come up, but also like. No. And that was the interesting irony, right? That we hear all the time that liberals are are the ones doing this, right? (laughs) That colleges are like, you have to think one way. And. And yet I have had more than one outlet not want to work with me because of beliefs I hold that had literally nothing to do with the book. They liked the book. They'd read the book. They knew the theology. And then when they looked into me, that was a deal breaker. Right. Right. And it is, I mean, that, I just, that standing in the river thing, the standing in the middle, it is a strange thing. And I mean, I think this is something that Ben and I talk about all the time. We just this, there is that ever present exhaustion and I'm healthy and able-bodied and able to, you know, like I don't have that extra level of exhaustion later on top of it, Mm. but that I have the, the privilege of that. And just the emotional exhaustion of staying engaged in that space is a lot. It's a lot. And we have like full on fuck it conversations all yeah. the time where oh, yeah. we're just like, fuck this. And I mean, Matthew and I, like the podcast is called Heathen. Yeah. For a reason. And then. And yet <laughs> we do. We have these interactions with, with, with all the people. Time. All- and Matthew and Ben and I run music for a church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> that is the thing that we do, you yeah. know? So like we live in that Again, it's that like wanting to ask the question space, but I think that I think that in in a polarized society, mm. in a, a divided space, that I don't think there is a more essential calling mm. right now than the willingness to sort of set aside that binary and the willingness to say like mm-hmm. it is okay to speak both of these languages because we can we mm-hmm. can speak both of these languages. And when you can have that conversation and when you can stand there and say, these two things aren't as different as they seem, we do have these things in common. And I know that because I've stood on both sides Mm. and I've looked at this from both sides of the thing. I can tell you that the people over here, when they tuck their kids in bed at night, think to themselves, you know, I hope that I'm teaching them the right thing. I I want to teach them the right thing. And the people on the other side, when they tuck their kids in bed at night, go, I hope I'm teaching them the right thing. You know, like it's, we're trying the, the there's villain they, they teach you in acting that villains don't think that they're villains right, right? like the the way to play the role of a villain is to not think that you're the villain mm-hmm. because you are you think that you're right mm-hmm. and every single one of us no one wakes up in the morning and goes I'm gonna do the wrong thing today I'm gonna believe <laughs> the wrong shit and I'm yeah. gonna limit myself and I'm gonna get stuck in a bunch of like nobody does that we all wake up and go I I feel righteous and convicted and I I, I believe the things I believe because I have good reasons and I've thought hard to get there and like we all believe this about ourselves mm. and um, the ability to walk in those worlds and and meet people with that sort of respect of yes you you are coming from this I mean it, it, to me when I hear you talk about this it sounds thoughtful it sounds like you've written it with respect for people uh, and sort of the acknowledgement that they've come to their faith and to their beliefs through meaningful ways and in good ways and that's mm. where they are yeah. mm. and that it's okay and good to honor that by meeting them where they are and vice versa, you know? So This may get me in trouble, but I appreciate you acknowledging that. And I, I did try to do that. I try to hold, I know I'm critical of a lot of evangelicalism, but I'm still trying to mm-hmm. hold respect for the fact that people come to these beliefs thoughtfully, like you said, they're not just... Mm-hmm. 
I'll say the thing. It's going to get me in big trouble. But they're not bigoted to be bigoted. Like they didn't set out that morning and be like, I hate people. How can I hate on people Mm -hmm. today? But at the same time, I really (laughs) wish, I really (laughs) wish that there could be more of that same sort of respect and that same sort of point of view coming from evangelicals towards people like me. And I'm not saying like, this is not where I go like, oh, liberals are doing this all right. And even, no, that's, that's not the case. Like there sure. are – I have enormous amounts of critiques for progressive Christian spaces. They are not – Of course. They are not free from my, from my wrath sometimes. You want to talk about some of the most ableist spaces that I go into as a disabled person. I was mm-hmm. just telling someone the other day actually that I was really hurt in a specifically inclusive uh, progressive, progressive space because they had gone out of their way to be so inclusive to so many different kinds of people. Uh, disability did not make that list. Didn't register. No, anymore. like they didn't even consider that at all in their attempts to help elevate other marginalized voices. And when called on that, their response was essentially that like, okay, there's like 40 million labels for everything now. We get it. We're going to make mistakes sometimes. Like not everybody is going to get acknowledged. Like look at the bigger picture and stop making this about you. And it was like, okay, Mm. if I had heard that in an evangelical space, being totally honest, I would have been like, okay, well, they're very exclusive. It's actually easier for me to compartmentalize and make it about them, right? Because it's not Mm -hmm. that they don't want me. It's that they have a very narrow view of who they want at all. And that excludes most everybody. But when your whole thing is, I'm super inclusive, (laughs) but I'm the only group that doesn't have that extended to me, well, that's different. I can't compartmentalize that. That's not about you. That's about you not wanting me specifically. I'm the undesirable here. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying, like, liberals have this all figured out. Conservatives, get right. your shiz together. They they have issues, too. But as an overarching theme, I don't, I don't see a lot of space yet where evangelicals or conservatives or anybody on that particular side of the spectrum are saying, oh, okay, well, you may have different beliefs in the end on your theology than I do, but I know you came to them thoughtfully. What I usually right. get is you've abandoned the Bible, you've abandoned all of the beliefs you were raised with, you've turned your back on Mm -hmm. all of it and just chosen what feels good instead, which Mm -hmm. is hard because if you've looked in my book, there's a crap ton of Bible in there. I talk about words in the (laughs) Greek. Like, this is not me being thoughtless and chucking it and saying, based on my story, this is what works better for me. I, I came to these beliefs because I still have what most people would technically term a high view of scripture Mm. so Mm -hmm. i would love that same respect of somebody saying i completely disagree with every premise of your book however Mm -hmm. you came to them thoughtfully like you you still have a biblical case here so we can Mm. disagree but that doesn't mean that i have to assume that you're ignorant or that you don't care right yeah and that's often the space that I'm trying to get to in conversation with folks who are more conservative on the scale than I am is just that feeling of yeah. like, I, for the record, I I have no problem with you believing the thing that you believe. Like the, the conflict is coming the other, the other direction. Mm-hmm. The, the conflict that we have here is that you don't approve of my 
ability, my right to have come to this, you know, the way that I've come to it and to yeah. live this way because mm-hmm. you, you think that I'm, I'm missing something by believing what I believe. Yeah. And I don't have that for you. So I'm not coming at this conversation from that lens. And just getting to that place is, it is hard. But it, at the same time, I spent the first 32 years of my life firmly believing that everyone who didn't believe what I believed was going to like burn in hell yeah. for all yeah. of eternity, you yeah. know? Yep. And that's like a pretty dire, that. <laughs> that's a dire thing to believe, you know? Like that's, if I thought that Fable was going to die because she didn't believe what I believed, I would never stop hounding her about it. I would do everything that I could. Yeah. I would pray every day that yeah. she would come back. If I thought her life, her soul was in peril, my God, mm-hmm. I almost didn't deconstruct because I thought her mm-hmm. soul was in peril. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, that's my, um, my mama's testimony mm-hmm. uh, thing that we used to you know, share every week. Okay. Um, it, it, it comes from a place of fear and it, it is mm-hmm. that it, it, like I've always, it's, it's always made me a little sad, yeah. obviously, um, that, that that's where her story and her faith begins every time. Like right. when, when she shares why she believes what she believes and she, she lands on love at the end, but it always starts there and always starts in fear and, it, it, it's hard. It's really hard for me to accept and process that, but also it, it gives so much co- context and understanding for, you know, why, why my family comes from the places they do and why they, right. why it's so hard to have that conversation. I, I, I love Stephanie that you are, are occupying this space as well in the middle too, because it's, uh, I get challenged a lot by people that I meet like you to, to, to do more of it. Because my my reaction has totally been to yeah I I will burn the thing down and I will walk away and I will I uh, in defense of what, you said something earlier that I was like oh you're describing me right now um uh, what is it, following what feels good I'm like mm-hmm. oh in defense of that like that is what I that's what my life is about now like I am gonna follow what feels good and I'm I'm gonna be very unapologetic about that because I spent so long doing the exact opposite and. Um, but there is, especially when we pull back and look at the world that we're living in today, oh, we need so much of it. We need so much, so many more people standing in the gap, first of all, so that you're not so lonely there and that, mm. that just talking about it doesn't bring you to tears. And then second of all, because I'm, and the world's burning and we, and we mm. are going to fall apart and just tear each other apart um, without the folks who are willing and able to stand in the middle mm. um, If I can leave you with a gift, it's that as much as I'm doing this and as much as I feel called to stand in this space, I don't necessarily put that onus on everybody. Because if I have a struggle right now, present tense, it's in finding those boundaries, right? It's in learning Mm -hmm. that um, because of my trauma wounding, I, I am someone who feels like she has to do this because it's what's right. So I'm still Mm -hmm. learning that there are times that maybe I shouldn't even be subjecting myself to further harm by constantly putting myself in spaces that are harmful to me. And Mm. I'm still working on finding that line. So I would never hold myself up as like the primary example of everybody needs to do it this way. And like, there are ways that I'm really unhealthy in this too. And where I'm Mm. acting out of codependency of sorts, right? Because I feel like I have to do something important. I have to Mm -hmm. justify my place on this earth by being a really important person, or doing a lot of good for other people. So if I can leave Mm -hmm. you with a gift at all, it's that you don't owe anybody being subjected to harm to educate them. 
Okay. Amen. So Absolutely. if you feel called to invest more in those spaces sometimes, please do it. Because again, fighting for that nuance, what I don't want people to hear in what I just said is that marginalized people who choose to go back into spaces like this, well, now you've chosen the pain because you knew what was coming so you don't get to complain mm-hmm. about it. That's not what I'm saying here either. That pain is still valid and you don't deserve that crap. But you do not owe anybody going back into those spaces. Your pain is valid. And if that's going to be harmful and toxic for you, then just don't. Don't go back there. Mm. Yep. Don't go back there. You help us by showing us what an escape route looks like then. Okay? Like that's that's a role to play too is to be holy Mm -hmm. and healthy out and say this is what it looks like. So maybe that's just not your calling. Maybe your calling is not to go stand in the river. Maybe your calling is to build beautiful things on the other side so that people know there's a point to trying to cross the river in the first place. Uh Yeah, absolutely. Ugh, all of it, all of it. (laughs) I cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. Whatever. I'm just a body of Christing over here. It's true. <laughs> but like it, it all comes back. Like, right. It's all the same. It's all the same thing. Like everybody has a, a you know, many hands make like light work and mm. everyone has their, their place. And I think that I'm, I am intrigued by the idea of just if everyone's, if your only goal is to just keep doing your work, just, just keep doing your work and just keep doing your work of figuring out who you are. Mm-hmm who you are in relation to your creator or your lack thereof wherever you land and yeah. just to keep re-engaging the work in whatever that looks like. If the work looks like rest, if the work looks like, you know, unpacking your trauma, if the work mm-hmm. looks like just hanging out with your family and coasting and doing like, if that's your thing, like whatever, whatever the thing is that is yours to pursue this, this lovely idea that there is some sort of intentional symphony orchestration in that, that if Mm. we were all to really lean into that, Kate would say, if we were all to be self-centered, that our self-centeredness then works in this beautiful tandem to feed, you know, something beautiful. I know we've run like crazy late, but I I would probably end on my end with this idea that I think for people that are coming out of systems of evangelicalism, you might find this helpful. It was helpful for me Mm. to part of the way that I released a lot of the guilt and shame and fear, like you described with fear, right? That maybe you would lead your kids astray if you left. And we carry a lot of that brainwashing that it's dangerous to even consider leaving. And so one of the things that was hard for me was I, I could get to the place where I thought God is okay with a certain amount of diversity and breaking out from the homogeny, but that was as far as I could take it. The, the big freedom moment for me and sort of the full transition of letting all of that go didn't start until I shifted to a theology where if I really believe that we carry the image of God, for me, that looks like believing we have such a big, such a multifaceted, enormous God that you can't carry the whole image of God. I can't carry the whole image of God. Matthew can't carry the whole image of God. It takes men, women, people of different races, cultures, personalities, sexual orientations, genders, you name it, to Hmm. fully reflect all these myriad of facets of this huge God. So it Hmm. shifted my thinking of it's not just okay for me Hmm. to be different. It's essential. 
because I am walking theology. You are walking theology. Our stories are theology. I posted the other day about watching that modern love series on Amazon and saying, like, that was theology to me, y'all. Like, I oh, modern love is much church about who God is in the diversity of those stories. Uh So if you aren't you and I'm not me and I don't just be who I was made to be, if I'm constantly trying to jam a square peg in a round hole, if I'm constantly shaving off pieces of myself to fit, I'm Mm. actually inaccurately showing people who God is. I'm actually Mm. altering God's character and preaching faulty theology, if you will. So even if you still are carrying those evangelical mindsets, it helped me to understand, like, hey, that's that's not a small thing. Like you're essentially a false preacher. Then, like that's not who you were supposed to be because that's not who God is. So stop showing people a crap picture of God and play the role that you were played mm. given to play because nobody else can do that. I'm Karen Thurston. I'm the co-host of the Heathen <laughs> Podcast, and I endorse this sermon. <laughs> Amen. I'm I think doing Liz Lemon's high fiving a million angels right now. <laughs> See, I'm Jesus but it's beautiful. I hope no, it's that just is, a what I love in that than you're used to hearing. Oh my God. But what I love in that, like, this is, I have this, uh, so I, I have my own weird obsession with everything is the same. <laughs> um, everything winds up in the same place. But our human conversations almost always wind up somewhere near this idea of, we all have this small piece of something really beautiful. And what does that look like? And I mean, you've just articulated it in a, in a, a, a beautiful way. Um, but I, as you're, as you are, we're saying that my, my impulse is to shout amen and also welcome to heathen. That's, <laughs> that's the heart. That's the heart of it. And that's the thing that I love about what you're doing in the world about these conversations is that I think that that's the thing I believe is true is that it all comes down to that. Hmm space of like whatever God is, God is real big and big enough for all of it Mm. and big enough for all of us. And I think that that's really fucking beautiful. Yep. To that, even this heathen will say amen. Amen! (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the end of a podcast right there. (laughs) It sounded like the end of a podcast. But we should also then tag on at the end and talk a little bit about... um, where they can find you on Absolutely. social media. Um, Heathens, we're going to put all the links in the show notes. So go there right now and follow, yeah. do all the social media follows. But Stephanie, yes, please tell us uh, specifically where you would like folks to. Uh, yeah, where, where, where would you like them to buy your book? First of all, yes. let's start there. So I'm supposed to say, don't go to Amazon because they're the big, bad conglomerate and all of that. But sure. um, that's, right. I mean, whatever's easiest and most convenient for you, right? It is Amen. on Amazon. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's Barnes and Noble. It's in most places books are sold. Uh, mm-hmm. you don't actually have to go into a Christian bookstore to buy it. So that's the good Thank news. You <laughs> if you do go into a Christian bookstore, it will be stocked under a giant sign that says women's issues. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. boy. Yeah. Is it next to the children's ministry I section? I don't know. Like, I think I uh. actually wrote a book about endometriosis, I guess, because that's <laughs> what they've stocked it under. So go look there. Oh. Not in Christian living or bestsellers, but in women's issues. So. Yes, because pain is, is only women suffer. I guess specifically a women's <laughs> a women's issue. At least they're aware Boy. that women suffer more. I guess that's what they're saying. No. Yeah, that's oh, nice. Okay. I guess that are their context. Too dramatic. Uh, just, I'm we're also so dramatic and emotional at stephaniewrites dot com, um, and I'm on Twitter as Steph Tate Writes. That's where my feistier opinions stay. Facebook. Um, 
has some. I don't have a page. I'm just a person. You can come follow me there. But um, Twitter is definitely where the rough cuts are. If you want the really feisty opinions, they all go to Twitter. The, the dark, seedy underbelly. Yeah. If you join story. me this month, it's it's mostly just me ranting about adoption. So have fun with that. I love it. <laughs> we all need a little more of that. It's good. All right, love. I think that you are spectacular. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you wound up here. And thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with us and preach a little gospel that mm-hmm. we love and understand and affirm. And um, yeah, I'm just glad. Yep. I'm glad we're connected in the world. I loved meeting you. Thank you so much. I was really proud to be here. So, like I said, this space feels a lot more like home than some of. The- I'm gonna cry again. What is with me today? Yeah, welcome to Heaven. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> You're gonna make a healthy seven out of me yet. So, yay, crying! <laughs> I wonder how many sevens really hate this podcast. Why are we always? You can do a whole episode.